In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all of the graces you have given us and continue to give us. Above all, for the gift of your Son, for his death and resurrection, for its continuation through the Eucharist, and for the invitation you have extended to us to participate in the Trinitarian life. We ask you to open up our minds and our hearts so that we can penetrate this great mystery more deeply. We pray through Christ our Lord. Welcome back to Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. I'm Brother Israel and this is episode 7. I'm going to preempt a couple questions and say yes, we are returning to our discussion of the Mastery Themes. Picking up where we left off several weeks, today we return with the third Master Theme, the Paschal Mystery. And yes, that does say the Paschal Mystery Part 1. We have at least two more episodes lined up dedicated to this master theme. We are very excited to share these with you. So without further ado, here is Episode 7, the Paschal Mystery Part 1. Father, why don't we dive right into the Paschal Mystery And we can begin actually with just the term, the Paschal Mystery. What do you mean when you say Paschal Mystery? What's Paschal about the mystery? What's mysterious about the Pasch? Yeah, well, yes, we'll dive in. Uh, You know, I think I told you often in class that uh, Paschal Mystery in theological discourse is a term that, that we use, and I call it theological shorthand for saying all at once, the suffering, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the sending of the Spirit, and the establishment of the Church. And the value of having a single term for all that is to realize that those are not uh, those are not discrete events that follow merely chronologically from one another. In some sense, they're one single huge deed of God. And we need a term that says it as one single huge deed of God with all these facets. So that's what Paschal Mystery means. But why do we call that Paschal and Mystery? Why the word Paschal? Why the word Mystery? The word Paschal, of course, is a biblical term. Uh, Pasch is, uh, is what we translate in English as the Jewish Passover. But... <clears throat> Uh, in English, we, we're not familiar with that term as a as a noun, Pasch. I mean, we say it, but it's not it's not in our discourse. But the adjective Paschal is in our discourse. But the the value of using that biblical term is that it describes Israel's central event that 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 gives Israel her own identity, uh, and it's and it's a term that refers to many dimensions of a single event. It refers, uh, we call it Passover in English, but the Pasch is the exodus out of Egypt of the, of the Jewish community. Uh, and it's crossing over to the other side of the Red Sea. And it's movement through the desert and the establishment of the covenant on Sinai. And that event celebrated annually in the Passover, in the Pasch. So all that's in the word. <laughs> and it's, it's in one word, and it's got all these dimensions. 
the word Pasch uh, means the slaughtering of the lamb and the blood that, that saved the Israelites. It, the word Pasch also means crossing the Red Sea. And the word Pasch means the feast uh, and the meal in which it's celebrated. And so uh, Christian theology takes all of that and uses the word Pasch or Passover for Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's one term that can say at the same time, death and resurrection. And we can dig a lot more into that because I want to I want to be sure we understand the significance of saying, in some sense, death and resurrection is a single deed of God. We really need to understand those more tightly together than I think we're inclined to do. Well, let's come back to that. Let's go to the word mystery. Okay, The, the word mystery is also a biblical word. Uh, we know that it doesn't mean, oh, something you can't understand. That's its, that's its secular parlance. But in, in Christian theology, we're taking the understanding of the word from St. Paul's use of the word mystery. And Paul uses the word mystery for the whole Christ event the, or the whole plan of God, which culminates in the whole Christ event. And, and so he says, in ages past, the mystery was hidden, but now is revealed. And so that term mystery uh, means what is hidden in God's plan, what is hidden in the figure of Christ himself, but is now revealed and made known to us. Uh, one of the key phrases where Paul uses this, the word mystery is in... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, none of the rulers of this age knew the mystery. If they had, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. you got the whole game of mystery in, in, in what he says there. Jesus was crucified. The rulers of this age could not see whom they were crucifying. They didn't know the mystery. They didn't know what was hidden in there. But in fact, who was being crucified was the Lord of glory. So if you know the mystery, then you know that the one crucified is the Lord of glory. And so all that's in the word mystery. And that's the way theology uses the word mystery in general. For that same reason, we use the word mystery or mysteries to describe the liturgy itself. The liturgy is a mystery. That doesn't mean the liturgy is something you can't understand. It means something is hidden in the, in the mystery. Something is hidden in the liturgy. Uh, what is hidden in it? The whole Christ event, present here and now. So if you understand how many directions the word Paschal moves at once and how many directions the word mystery moves at once, you got a great term there, Paschal mystery. So that's why we do it. Yeah, so Father Abbott, we have a class on introduction to homiletics with you right now. Um, and in there, you talk about how in the readings and in the homily, you should connect the Paschal mystery to the readings. Um, and, the, and the church documents talk about that as well, the church documents on um, homiletics. And, and one thing I, I remember um, talking about in class and really um, was like an aha moment for me. Um, was that, you know, some readings, obviously, you can see the, that Paschal mystery in it, and it connects easily. 
but some are, are harder, especially in the Old Testament sometimes, mm-hmm. to see how does this really connect to Christ. Um, but one idea that really hit me was the idea that you can read those in light of the Paschal mystery. So rather than trying to find the Paschal mystery in the reading, you look at the Paschal mystery and then you apply that to the reading and kind of a, a reverse view of what I was kind of looking at it. And, and in that way, you're able to connect the Paschal mystery to the reading. Well, then I'm glad you got that aha, because that certainly is one of the ways you can do it. And you see, the reason why we as Christians read the Old Testament is because we believe the whole story is in fact moving toward this center, which is the Paschal Mystery. That's the reason we read it in the first place. And so in some sense, we're reading it, looking for that in it. But we also are helped uh, <clears throat> by, the, by some of the realities of the Paschal Mystery to find that in the text. And what I mean by some of the realities, and that's a kind of a, <clears throat> a discreet way of saying the reality of the presence of the risen Lord to our minds. You know, uh, the chapter 24 uh, in Luke's Gospel, the resurrection account, speaks of the Lord opening our minds to the understanding of the scriptures. So the Lord himself is going to be present. That's, that, that helps, and the Holy Spirit also helps, because the Holy Spirit actually has given us the scriptures, and you know we speak of him as the author of the scriptures. Well, the one who produced those scriptures in the first place, divinely inspired scriptures, also, Origen said this, inspires the reader. And you have to count on that. And when you do count on it, then the text is loosened and can can take you many places. And so you're reading the text because you are inside Christ crucified and risen. And things will jump out of the text that would not otherwise jump out of it from there. And I don't say they're embedded in the original meaning of the text. <clears throat> but uh, your meaning will not betray what's in the text. Uh, the, the text will go way beyond it. The text, exp- Gregory the Great says that, beautiful. The text expands with reading. The author we're reading in the monastery in a book on the crucifixion just a couple of days ago had us focus on the fact that in both creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, the focus is not on the ministry of Jesus, which is a large part of the written Gospels, but instead on the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, he was the Son of God, became Son of Mary, and then they move towards passion, death, resurrection, sits at the right hand of God, both creeds. What's the significance of noticing this? I mean, just noticing the fact that here we have these two summaries of the Gospels, and they leave out about three years of Jesus' life to focus on, let's say, these three days, the passion, death, and resurrection. And another, um, another point you could add to that is all of Paul does the same. Paul's whole gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ uh, without reference to the ministry of Christ in any way. So what that means is the, the point I'm constantly making All of the scriptures have a center, and the life of Jesus itself has its own center. 
and the center of Jesus' own life is his death and resurrection, or let's use the word, the Paschal Mystery is where his whole life is headed. So what this shows us is where the unmistakable center lies. Uh, and an, uh, the reason why the ministry of Jesus is told is because there came a time in church communities, obviously those memories stayed alive from the start because Jesus' ministry was a precious memory to the community. <clears throat> but all of those stories are told from the perspective of resurrection. <clears throat> I, I'd like to put it this way. This, this, the Gospels are constructed in this way, from resurrection to death to resurrection. And by that I mean, if in the chronology of things, obviously the order is from death to resurrection. Or if in the chronology of things, the order is his life and his death and his resurrection. The perspective of the telling is resurrection. And so now, to tell of his death in such a way as to understand it and to arrive at resurrection. Or resurrection. And so to tell of his ministry, so to see that his ministry was always leading toward death and resurrection. Or resurrection. Go way back to his birth and tell that the story is already embedded in his birth. But none of those stories... Is, is, is in the gospel apart from the perspective of resurrection. No gospel writer is writing to give you information about the bio biography of Jesus with the surprising finish of his death and resurrection. You know, uh, th th that's not why any of it's told. And that's also why we don't have to worry about the, the differences between one evangelist and another. They're not interested in, in packing up uh, packing out there and, and laying out there discrete factual details about what he exactly said when he went there and what he did there and and the other evangelist does it another way. No one can remember six months ago that way, much less 40 and 50 years ago when the Gospels are finally constructed as a, as a literary genre. Mm -hmm. So those that's why we can kind of calm down about you know, did Jesus actually go there then and actually say that? It, what it is is a memory from the perspective of resurrection, a memory from the perspective, let's say, of death and resurrection, or let's use our word, it's the memory of the Paschal Jesus with uh, all that that inspires. Then the whole thing can be remembered in ways that the goal is to lead you more deeply to an understanding of this this moment that never passes away, which is his Pasch. He is permanently established in his Pasch, in his Paschal mystery. In light of this conversation, Father, I'm thinking of the resurrection account according to St. John. And this is going to be part observation and part question. It was probably in class you you had us notice the fact that in the resurrection account, according to St. John, the Lord rises, and that same day he appears before his apostles and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. So we've got resurrection, Pentecost, one event, one day. 
We don't see that in, say, the Gospel according to St. Luke. There we have the resurrection one day, 40 days later the ascension, 10 days after that, Pentecost. So that's the observation. The question is, what do we make of this? In one sense, they're saying the same thing. But the way they've gone about it is significantly different. One day, 40 days, 50 days structure gets collapsed by St. John. He collapses everything into one day. He does. He collapses it at the first meeting, and that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an essential insight. That's the gospel text read on the day of Pentecost, uh, 50 days after it happened, chronologically. But it never stops happening, so you can read it. Uh, but, uh, but So John has, John, in a very essential way, collapses not only Pentecost under that day, but think of just a, a few verses before that, when Mary Magdalene recognizes him in the garden, and and she goes to embrace him, uh, uh, exclaiming "Rabuni," and and he says, "Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go tell my brothers that I am ascending. I am ascending." So he is ascending on Easter Day, and on Easter Day he says, "Receive the Holy Spirit." So John has put all those dimensions into one day. And yet, his story continues with further resurrection appearances. So, ooh, how do you do that? Uh, but And Luke puts a kind of order in all those dimensions such that you can see that periods of time passed between those dimensions. And he gives them symbolic numbers. But we can't say that that's a literal account of how long it took because actually... Uh, Matthew has the Lord. He, he doesn't ascend at all in Matthew, but he he appears only at some day after Easter Sunday in Galilee, and his last words are, "I am with you always, until the end of the ages." Uh, nobody says anything about him disappearing or not, but he apparently has because they're writing the gospel and he's not there, but he's there in this new form. So there's what what is all that? That's the reality of resurrection exceeding our control and yet present to us. So yeah, um that's uh, but what the dimensions that we come out of that with are all the words I say that are in the Paschal mystery. Death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, sending of the Spirit which establishes the church. And you find that expressed in different ways in different of the New Testament texts. Father Abbott, one thing that really struck me in what you were just saying is how St. Paul has no mention of Jesus' life and his teachings, or very little of it. Rather, his focus is on the Paschal mystery, on Christ's death and resurrection. And one reason why that strikes me is because before coming to seminary, I was aware that there was this version of Christianity or this temptation to want to reduce Christianity to a moral code or a way to grow in a moral life, and to be how to be a good person. There are different ways to learn how to be a good person, and Christianity is one of those. And since coming to seminary, I've then learned that, that that is not a new phenomena, that that has been 
present in the history of of the world and the history of Christianity for a long time. But St. Paul seems to be very adamant against that. And, of course, if he were here, he would defend himself and he would say, well, of course, the moral life is important. And he would explain how it connects to the Paschal mystery. So it's, it's not to say that he had no place for the moral life. And the moral life is one of your master themes, and we'll get to that in a, in a few weeks. But to stay here with the Paschal mystery, why... I guess I have two questions, and maybe I'll just pose both, and you can choose to to either take both or or um, see what you think would be best. But one is, why is there the constant temptation to reduce Christianity to the moral life? And secondly, what do we lose when we do that? What do we lose when we turn our our eyes, our focus away from the Paschal mystery. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's a it's a great question, and it's a question, and that if in is a long answer to it, and a short answer probably. I'll give you the long one. Um, but <clears throat> please. But no, it's the the question is an occasion to put into clear relief the absolute distinctive value of what Christ has done and accomplished in his death and resurrection, which is a a change of cosmic proportions that changes the possibilities of human nature itself. And so the risk is in just constant, in, in reducing the Jesus reality to a moral message of Jesus, the risk is to think that that's what Jesus has done, has brought us good ideas of things we should do. Good luck if you can do them. So, you know, that's that's not what's significant about Jesus. Uh, and that's why Paul is probably not even aware of the of what Je- how Jesus taught uh, and what his miracles were and all that. Uh, and that that's why Paul says... Uh, he, he summarizes the whole thing in, in many places, but what comes to mind is First Corinthians. I resolved to to preach nothing with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And and then in the same letter he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. So when Paul says one or the other, he means the other, you know. So, but the, 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 in Paul, there's no doubt that that's where the weight lies. Moral questions are a vital concern for Paul too, but not so much the moral teaching of Jesus, but what our own being inserted into the death and resurrection of Jesus, the change that causes in us. And there are many places he does that, but Romans 6 comes to mind. Are you not aware that you who have been baptized into Jesus have been plunged into his death? And then he goes on to say, that's a death to sin. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might live a new life. He doesn't say, literally, you too might rise. He says, you too might now live a new life. So the only way Christian morality can be what Christian morality is, 
is if you have been inserted into the death and resurrection of Christ, which Paul teaches and which the church has absorbed through thousand, several thousand years now, that this is a cosmic change, it's an ontological change that makes a new level of morality possible. That cosmic change is also at work when the church, from the perspective of resurrection, remembers the ministry of Jesus in a different literary genre called the Gospels and remembers Jesus' teaching. And, and, and that's the only context in which Jesus' teaching can be imitated and followed. Uh, otherwise, it's too hard to do. Uh, so uh, that would be really um, one of the ways I would put it. And I would say, in a sense, I think it can be I think it's it's normal for us to think of religion as morality. And so we tend to do that. We Christians tend to just do that. But also, it makes it much easier to reject Christianity as a claim if all it is is a moral code. Because how often do you hear people, and this is a very immediate pastoral question, who say, I'm good. So I don't need to. I don't need this. You could argue, well, I don't think you're good, but but don't argue that way. I don't care if you're good or not. This isn't about being good. This is about being a new creation, in the only way one becomes a new creation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, if you reduce the question to morality, the, there's enough facts in the world to show people do not need Christianity to be good. People are good without it. I mean, they'll be better with it. But the question is not that. The question is the new creation. Uh, but Ben, you have a question. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Um, changing track just a little bit uh, to kind of get a broad perspective here. You know, as um, the Eucharist, of course, is our, our kind of where we tap into the Paschal Mystery in our own lives in, in a particularly poignant way. Um, and as as pre, the priesthood and as us men preparing for the priesthood, you know, the priesthood and, and the Eucharist are said in the church to be codependent on each other in a way. So would you have, do you have any thoughts on how the Paschal mystery particularly has an impact on the priesthood uh, in itself? Yeah, um, it has its impact on the priesthood because every sacrament is a celebration of the Paschal Mystery and an application of the Paschal Mystery to some dimension of the Church's life. Uh, so, I mean, you should just think of that as a principle in sacramental theology. What is being celebrated is the Paschal Mystery. We ex ex uh, expand that. What is being effected by the uh, by any given sacrament is the power and divine life and new creation that is embedded in the suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Spirit, establishing of the Church of Jesus is here and now applied to what's the sacrament. Baptism, you're inserted into it. Confirmation, you're sealed. Eucharist is the, is the culmination of initiation. Priesthood is, is that sacrament 
conforming the priest uh, as as priest uh, as as conforming the the, the 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 guy ordained to be a sacrament of the priesthood of Christ, leading the community uh, in its prayer and in its teaching, representing the apostolic continuity. That, that's, that's, not, that's not a human arrangement of how do you organize your church, uh, that you know you, this is a human organization. No. It's the divine arrangement that guarantees the presence of Christ that he passed on to his apostles, being passed on in the ministry of this priest, which includes in a, in its most its highest form of ministry, really, is the the presiding uh, at the celebration of the Eucharist of the whole community, and so you know your very ordination as a priest is Paschal mystery conforming you to the priestly uh, action and ministry of Christ, and. In the day-to-day of your priesthood, as you lead the Christian community in the celebration of the Eucharist, you spell that out, preaching, teaching, the ministry that brings your community to the altar in the first place and sends it out from there. All that's the priestly action of Christ. But above all, in leading the people in offering the sacrifice with you. All that's Paschal mystery, and so it's the it's the key to your life as priests. Uh, well, I think there's a good good time to put a semicolon, go to a question from the audience. How does that sound? Yeah, that's good. Abbot Jeremy, thank you for taking my question. My name is Stephen Wood, and my question regards the parable of the prodigal son. I was wondering, where can we see the Paschal mystery, and in particular the, the Eucharistic table and altar? I was wondering, wouldn't it have been more appropriate if a lamb had been slaughtered rather than a fatted calf, or is that trying to stretch the story too much? I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts on this. Thank you. Well, uh, that's a good that's a good question, Stephen, uh, and you can go lots of lots of ways with it. Uh, it's good to recall uh, the context of the gospel in which Jesus told that story, and it was in response to a complaint uh, against him. Uh, this man uh, eats and drinks with sinners, and Jesus responds with the story. Uh, but when uh, I'm glad you're looking for the Paschal mystery in the story because that's what we do. That's what we learned in, in class, especially in preaching class. How do you bring that story to the Paschal mystery, or how do you bring the? Uh, how does the Paschal mystery shed light on the story? In general, you don't want to you don't want to take the details of a story and make them correspond in some strict way to the Paschal mystery. What you look for is a pattern, and the pattern is already suggested uh, uh, by the uh, by that key phrase, uh, and it, it, it's in the gospel as read in the liturgy. Um, Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners. That was that's called table fellowship with sinners. What that is is an acceptance of sinners, and uh, the acceptance of sinners uh, is a big piece of what the Paschal mystery is all about. So in that way, you've already got the text coming toward the Paschal mystery, 
and it involves this uh, enacting of sin, which is a going away from the Father and a squandering the gifts. That's obviously the Father represents God in this story, and uh, Jesus is Jesus by his storytelling is teaching us about his Father. And what he teaches us about his father is that even though sinners are going away from his father, he is always on the lookout for them. And when the son needs him, he comes back. And and what is what is really significant about the story is the father's reaction. The father has no recriminations and is, is in fact running toward the sinner to receive him. So that's, uh, you know, if you're preaching on this uh, and wanting to bring it toward the Paschal mystery, you could raise the question, and how does the Father run toward us as sinners? He does it by actually sending his own beloved son. That would be one possible way of dealing with it. Or by himself uh, embracing us. But, you know, there's no way to say, how does the Father embrace sinners? He embraces sinners in the way that Christ comes and is there in solidarity with us sinners. Uh, Another place where you have the, the Paschal mystery or could bring it to the Paschal mystery is that the Father wants to respond with a feast of return. And, and you can obviously link the feast, as your question did, with the Eucharist. But any feast can be linked to the Eucharist. Jesus uh, was just telling a good story, and uh, a fattened calf was good for the story. Uh, so, you know, he, the, the, the point is, Jesus didn't have the Paschal banquet in mind. He just had a good banquet in mind. Uh, but the... The idea of celebrating the sinner's return with a joyful banquet, that it's easy to have uh, a Eucharistic illusion there or a Paschal mystery illusion. You have the jealous, the, the story goes to the jealous son uh, who complains, you've received a sinner back and I've been good all the time. You know, the, the problem there is obvious, is that the father wants everyone, sinner and faithful alike, around the table. So something like that would be the way you bring it there. I call that patterns, finding finding patterns. And use the story's images. The story's images are a sinner is forgiven, the father comes running toward us, the father gives a banquet to receive the sinner back. Something like that. Thank you, Father Abbott. Well, that question dovetailed really smoothly with our conversation today. So we'll stop here and we'll come back in a couple of weeks with the Paschal Mystery Part 2. Since recording that question, Stephen Wood has been ordained to the diaconate, so make sure you keep him in your prayers. Well, you heard it from Nelson. We'll be back in a couple weeks to continue our discussion of this third master theme. And to make sure you don't miss parts two and three or any other future episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're hearing us. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, which we will be releasing once a week. Go ahead and visit our website, theologyatmtangel.com. There you will also find information on how to contact us. We've already had some great feedback from you, our listeners, 
about how this podcast has helped you and what you appreciate about it. So don't be shy. If you have a question about something Abba Jeremy has said, or if you have some comment or suggestion, be sure to send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. All right, until next time, God bless.